Hello, it's Alex, and welcome to the Imbue Podcast. Today we have a super special guest, Ariel Gold. Ariel was a bronze medalist in Pyeongchang in 2018. Follow her beautiful comeback story from dislocating her arm in the early rounds of Sochi 2014 to win a bronze medal in Pyeongchang 2018. She's a beautiful, humble, and down-to-earth girl, and we're super grateful that she shared her story with us on the podcast. Enjoy. How was your fourth? It was good. I uh, just got back from Steamboat. We were actually, I was backpacking over the fourth in Wyoming and then just went through Steamboat and stayed with my parents for a few days. Um, and then, yeah, I just got back last night, so it was nice. It was good to be outside and finally be done with my class for a second. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. You have the summer class. How's that going? Is it okay or terrible? Or... It's over. Oh, it's I, over. It ended on uh, the second, and we left for Wyoming, like, that night, so. You're like, like peace. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I have to go do something summer-related, because I've been in classes for, like, the past like 11 months straight so i needed some i needed some time off <laughs> why have you been going so hard just like i it- just, i just like did i didn't compete much this past season because i had like some head injuries earlier in the fall oh, um and was just like kind of needed a year off anyway so i just decided to kind of chill for the year and have just been like trying to knock out as many classes as i could in the meantime well you picked the best year to chill out damn like yeah could to the line any better that's yeah that's cool though i was good i'm actually in los angeles right now uh, i've been nice. here for the past like three four months i drove i actually drove through wyoming about two or three weeks ago with my little sister i flipped to minnesota to get my car to bring it out here and so we stopped at like the badlands uh yellowstone Ye- it was snowing in yellowstone when we went through i couldn't believe it we we're like driving through oh yellowstone and it was like snowing i was like what are we doing here and we it was like the day before it was like over 100 and then then the then when we were driving through Yellowstone, it was like low twenties. I was like, oh my gosh, that's June for that's you. Insane. Again. But yeah, it was beautiful. I'd never been before, so that was really cool. And then we went to where else did we go? We went to the Bonneville Salt Flats. Oh, no, we went to the Grand Tetons, and then we went to the Bonneville Salt Flats outside Salt Lake City, and the, nice. of course the Great Salt Lake, and then Yellowstone and Yosemite. So we've hit we hit quite a few of the good. I was gonna say you hit all the good places. I'd say. <laughs> yeah, and they all opened up like just a week or two before we went, so it was oh, perfect nice. time. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Well, good on you. Definitely, like, knocked them all out. Yeah, and I've never been before. Like, I've, you know, I've traveled a decent amount outside the country, but I haven't really realized how beautiful it is here. So, it's yeah. good to see. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, the Tetons feel like they should be in a different country. Every time I go, I'm like, this is in America? It feels wrong. Do you snowboard there? What's that? Do you snowboard there at all? No, I've, n- I've never been to Jackson in the winter. I've, I've only been twice, and I've only been in the summertime. Oh, okay. But it, I would love to. I, I definitely would like to at some point. Yeah. No, I hear you. I'm surprised there's not more, like, endurance athletes that live there like or train there, like live and train yeah. there because it's at high altitude. And it's, yeah. like, pretty flat and it's gorgeous, like, great air. Like, I don't know. Yeah. It's expensive to live there. But it's such, right. a, it's such a beautiful place. My God. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, would, I would love to live there someday. It's freaking awesome. Wait, I actually have a question. Do you think – is it safe to drink water that comes from a national park river? Like if if you get it up from up in the mountain, 
it's funny because we were talking about that while we were backpacking actually because we we filtered all of our water because we had the stuff to do it anyways but i i feel like the water up there is so clean i feel like it would be fine because i didn't filter it i I probably filled it like two or three water bottles while i was drinking and then after i was like i hope i don't get some like weird bug or disease or something like that like i don't know i was thinking about it did you get sick no i didn't get sick so oh okay well (laughs) Then I feel like that's, I feel like it's, I mean, you got to think, I, I would imagine that that water's cleaner than some city's waters for sure. I agree, actually. Like, LA water, I would not touch. Like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know where it comes from. It's a desert here. Like, where does the water come from? Uh, yeah, I, it's, I'm sure it's not great wherever it does come from. Yeah, true. But were you, like, completely off the grid when you were backpacking? Like, did you guys go um, in a tent? Yeah, basically. Like, we didn't, I... I had my phone with me just because I like to take photos sometimes, but I don't think we had service, like, at any point, which was really nice. Like, it's nice to just, like, leave it in the bag and not think about it. And my roommate has a nicer phone than I do, so she ended up taking most of the photos. So we just got to take advantage of her photos because I don't, like, when I'm out there, I don't like taking my phone out anyways, so. I feel you. I feel you on that. What's nice, you had you had a backpacking trip with a professional photographer. You just got to enjoy. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. She any her phone is so nice. It's like every any photo she takes looks like it's professional just because of the quality of the camera. Is it an iPhone or is it like a or is it something else? No, it's just like the newest iPhone that oh. has like the three cameras and everything. Yeah. It just I have an eight and it so my camera just looks like shit compared to hers. <laughs> I have the 10, but I dropped it when I was at Yosemite, so now it's like it's like barely functioning. I like put it in rice and was like praying every night that it would come out okay, and it it's like half okay. But but my buddy, he has another he has another camera. I think it's like a Samsung or something, and his photos are like insane. Like they're so oh, good. Really? Yeah. That's cool. So, but but yeah, cool. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to come on here. Um, appreciate it. So sorry, I've been such a pain in the ass about no getting worries. organized. I like. <laughs> I've been like the most unreliable, uncommunicative person I've ever been in my life for the past couple months with my classes. So that's not normally how I am. So I'm sorry that I made you. I made you work for it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good you made me work for it, right? Gotta earn it. <laughs> but uh, I feel like that's like everybody right now. They're all just like they have the Netflix brain, just from yeah, <laughs> with the whole quarantine situation and whatnot. But cool. Well, it's cool that you started this. It's awesome. I, I, I was like, I don't know why I hadn't asked what it was called up until today. But then <laughs> yeah, like, my roommate was like, a half hour. called? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> well, I should actually, find that out. I should probably find that out before I go on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like, no, it looks cool though. Thank you. It's an extension of uh, a company I started. It's We're still super small right now. Um, but actually when I was – so when I met you – I actually met one of my future bosses at that that same like at the Olympics there, and so I went to go work for him over in Poland. And while I was there, uh, it was a second like sportswear brand. So it's, I'm not sure if you've heard of 4F before. They sponsor like the Polish team and the Greece team. I don't, I don't even think any of the, any of the teams are like really strong in uh, snowboarding. Maybe like the Lithuania. I don't know if there's any good well, Lithuanian snowboarders. Okay, but like, there's but, not many. But a lot of like a lot of like the small countries. But uh, yeah. but uh, so anyways. I got this idea for this company and came back last summer and started it. Um, and essentially the idea is to build a universal gym membership. So you'd buy a single membership and get unlimited access into any unaffiliated gym that we have in our network. And launched in Minnesota at the end of uh, at the end of last year. I had about 35 gyms on board. 
And so this is just like a way for me to connect with high level athletes and and and, and friends basically, just to like catch up and um, I don't know, like just to, to help help with them in a good light, right? But also uh, help with the branding with Imbue as well. So yeah, for sure. No, that's great. So that's a cool idea for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's been it's been super tough because I'm I'm not technical. Like I don't know how to code, right? So it's been kind of like a a little bit of a slog, but. But uh, I love fitness, and so you know it's it's like a natural fit. So yeah, yeah, no, that's great. So, what are you studying in school? Um, so I'm a psych major, but I am still I'm hoping to go to vet school eventually. That's kind of still the long term goal. So it's pretty much they'll take kind of any science major. So I, psych just seemed like the most interesting to me, but that's why I have to take like organic chemistry and these other shitty classes because I got to knock them out at some point for their like prerequisites to apply. Oh, you're taking, are you taking the OCHEM this summer? Is that what you're doing? That's what I just finished. Oh, okay. I can, that, now this all makes sense. Cause I know that class is absolutely terrible. My sister had to take that class. Oh so I, yeah. So yeah. I've heard, I've heard the horror stories about it. <laughs> yeah. It was like condensed OCHEM, like summer OCHEM. So I just, any free time I had that I wasn't eating or showering or exercising, I felt like I needed to be studying. Not so, even sleeping. Yeah, <laughs> you didn't even include sleeping in there. Oh, that's funny. That's good though. Um, but how, so so what? You said you were injured this last year. What what had happened? Um. So I was in. I was training in Switzerland with the U.S. team back in October, and I it was, was like a training like, camp, or like is that where you guys train usually over there? It was, we've gone the past couple years because we used to go to New Zealand and the snow and weather were just always super inconsistent there. So um, there's this glacier in Switzerland that they've been putting on, it's Sauce Bay. They've been putting on training camps there for the past couple years because they usually have better snow. Um, And so that's like for the past two or three years, that's been where we've had our fall camps. Um, And I was just like, trying to get my tricks back and was doing a front 10 and like landed kind of on my heels and just like fell back and hit the back of my head. Um, and yeah, like immediately started having like concussion symptoms, um, and ended up going home a bit early cause I got basically, I got diagnosed with a concussion. Um, and then like a month later we were at another training camp in Austria and I fell on my butt super hard and my head like whiplashed and I like re-aggravated all of the symptoms again. Damn. Um, yeah. So that sucked. And then just kind of throughout the season, I kept like periodically going to random contests just to like, like I went to X games and I went to the first event of the season. Just random and, events. Just like, went to X games. Just went to, <laughs> you <laughs> well, said so like, casually. <laughs> The but, first of it, I like kind of was like, okay, maybe I'll just take the year off. And then I was like, oh, but maybe I'll just try for X Games. And then, yeah, I, I still went and rode at X Games and just didn't feel good. So I decided not to compete. And then I just kind of committed to taking the season off because I just like, after dealing with like the symptoms and stuff I was having, I just, it didn't feel worth it to like put myself at any more risk of like, if I wasn't totally healed, just like re-injuring it again. Well, to think of like how and like how focused and how intense the activity you're doing, like you have to have your brain at 100 percent all the time, right? Like, 
Yeah, I just, like, I was getting, like, vertigo and stuff and just feeling, like, disoriented when I was riding. And, like, it was, it, towards the end, it was, like, very minor. Like, when I was considering riding in a lot of contests, it, it was, like, a very small degree of, like, dizziness. But, like, any slight bit of apprehension when you're riding and trying to do, like, contest-level snowboarding is not conducive to staying healthy. Yeah. When you're doing flip, when you're doing flips and stuff like that, like I, yeah, I couldn't even imagine. Like I remember when I had concussions in hockey, you know, up in Minnesota, that's like the sport you play. Right. And like, I mean, I mean, that's bad. But but this, like, your life like depends on it. Like, you have to have your brain in 100 percent function. Like, if you miss a trick, I don't, I don't know. I just feel like that'd be it's so much more. The stakes are so much higher. Yeah. When you're when you're up in the air, so. Yeah. No, it definitely like. To a certain degree, I just wanted to be like, I've done these tricks enough. I can keep going and I'll be fine. But I just don't think it's just, it's just not worth messing with. Like the, the way that my head would hurt when I was trying to work on school or even just like look at a screen or try and read. And like, sometimes my eyes would like jump lines while I was reading and stuff. Like I've had concussions in the past, but I had never had ones that had like this degree of symptoms and like this length of time of feeling the symptoms. So I just like was definitely not trying to risk like extending the time that I was healing any longer than it already felt like it was. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's smart. That's crazy. Was that your first kind of major injury you've had? Like, um, my major, I would say, like, that's my first, like, pretty significant head injury. I think um, before that, it was my shoulder. Like, I had had chronic dislocations for, like, the four years um, between 2014 and 2018 Olympics. And then I had surgery right after the 2018 Games, like, right when I got home. Oh, I didn't know uh, But then since then, my shoulder's been great. I just, like put off that surgery that whole time and then couldn't do it right before the Olympics. So then I just kind of kept going through it. It just like subluxed my shoulder a lot, but got through. Did that contribute to winning the bronze medal? Is that the secret? You just got to fight through the pain. Subluxing my shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully that's not what did it. If I end up going to another one, definitely <laughs> rather just stay healthy for that one. Yeah. No, that's funny. Cool. Well, I mean, I want to. I always find it super interesting to go back to like the athletes' like early days and like what got them into their sport in the first place. So, like, what was your beginnings of getting into snowboarding? What was kind of your first memories around it, and what got you into snowboarding? Is this something you've done since you were like three years old, and your mom had you on the leash, or was it like you know, or was it something when you started when you were ten? Because I don't know. You, you mean like, how did it start for you? Well, so I started out skiing. Um, no I grew up in Steamboat Springs, in, and so it was kind of a natural progression for us Coloradans to be put on skis or snowboards from a super young age. Um, both of my parents skied already, so I think they just thought it was the natural thing to put me on a pair of skis, and I had a pink leash that they would hold on to while, no they, while I rode in front of them down the mountain. Um and it was obviously, I really enjoyed skiing, actually. Don't tell any of my snowboarder friends that. <laughs> uh, and then my older brother, Taylor, who's actually two years older than me, started snowboarding when he turned seven, and he absolutely loved it. So I thought that 
being the little sister that I was, it was only fitting that I try and copy him and do what he, what he did. Um, and so I picked up snowboarding when I turned seven and pretty much stuck with it from that point on. Interesting. What do you like better now, skiing or snowboarding? You can't say it. You can't leave it. Snowboarding? <laughs> snowboarding? Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. I still, I still do like to cheat sometimes, though, and I go skiing like once or twice a season just for fun because it's nice to switch it up for a little bit. It's I kind of go back to feeling like I'm learning again, just like learning the basics of just trying to turn down a hill. Um, definitely makes me appreciate snowboarding and how like instinctual it is at this point. For you, unconscious yeah. competence. I think your snowboarding friends are just jealous that you're that you're a better skier than they are. <laughs> <laughs> that could be it. Some of them are shockingly good skiers. It's you never really see that, especially like in the ski industry. It's the same thing. I know several professional skiers who are actually pretty good snowboarders too. Seriously. Cool. Oh yeah. Nice. So growing up in growing up in Steamboat Springs was it kind of like the culture, like ev- like every day after school you go up and go snowboarding or what was it kind of like in the early days? So once you got introduced to it, how did you get good at it? Was it something you were naturally good at or is it something you had to work at for like 10 years to get, you know, really good at or at least to to the level that you are now? It was definitely something initially I, I actually completely hated it. Um, Like the first several days on a snowboard, I, just felt like I couldn't do anything like was just falling constantly and especially having already skied for several years and I was already to the point that I could get down the mountain and was proficient at skiing it kind of felt like self-inflicted torture a little bit to try to learn a completely different sport but I think that that just made me want to learn it more just the challenge of it so like the more that I did it, the more that I enjoyed it. And especially because my older brother was still doing it, I think that really motivated me to continue um, trying to get better. And also around that time, I don't think it was quite as much the norm for skiers to be in the park in half pipe as much as it is now. Like it used to be more like that was snowboarder culture was to be like park in half pipe and skiers were still more kind of in the racing area. Um, so it felt like that was like the quickest access to being able to do that was through snowboarding. Um, so I just, I pretty much would go up every single day, um, and train on the mountain, especially in steamboat. They actually set up a specific schedule. Once you get to high school called skier schedule. And if you are competing in skiing or snowboarding or like are a member of the winter sports club there, you can set your schedule for high school so that every other day you get off at noon. Wow. So, yeah, so I'd start my classes at 7.20 every day. I start an hour earlier than everybody else. And then on the long day, I would stay an hour later than everybody else. But on my half day, I got to leave at noon and go ride the mountain for the whole afternoon. That's so awesome. Damn. Yeah. What happens if the powder day landed on on one of the long days? We're like, can we just make an exception here? Like, <laughs> I just leave. I just feel like yeah. they, they would understand. At a certain at a certain amount of snow, they should just be canceling school there, anyways. Yeah, true. Well, it's not safe to drive, but also like it's yeah, it's fun. You get the fun aspect of it. Mm-hmm. That's sweet. So, when did you know that you were like good at it, and like this is something that you wanted to like pursue even more? Because I feel like. I, like there, 
has to, I mean, I may, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like there was there has to have been some point where you're like, okay, like maybe I can actually go the distance on this. Maybe I can make the the national team. Like maybe I could do this as a career, or not maybe not, not a career, but I can I can take this to the highest level. It could. Right. Yeah. I would say probably when I was around 12 or 13 was when I started to feel like it could be something worth pursuing. Um, I would say, especially growing up in Steamboat, while I did really enjoy snowboarding, I also, I guess my first love was riding horses. Um, that is something that I did from when I was two years old until up until this point, I still have my own horse. Um, and I think that I just never really thought that those two things could really mesh together. I, I also wanted to go to veterinary school. So I was kind of thinking like, well, if I do this whole snowboarding thing, then that's going to kind of take me away from this path. That's a little more animal oriented, I guess. Um, but then as I kind of competed more and more and was starting to kind of compete on local circuits, just around Colorado, um, I definitely had some coaches as well as my older brother telling me that if I continued pursuing this, that it was something that I could potentially go pro in. Um, and the more I competed and the more time I spent like getting to know the community and really like giving myself the opportunity to get as involved in snowboarding as possible. I think the more that I realized it was something that I would be interested in pursuing and, um, the progression was just kind of natural. Like the, the support system I had behind me definitely was um, a huge part of why I ended up eventually getting onto the U.S. team and um, eventually competing at the professional level. What did you do your first flip? When? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a tough one. It was probably when I was, I think, 12. I remember I was trying to learn a McTwist um, in the half pipe. I was definitely doing more of just a front flip not as much like a proper McTwist, which has like a very unique access to it. Mm -hmm. But I was full on like going, just throwing it and hoping that it would come back to my feet eventually. Oh, dang. <laughs> Wait, so you did this, you did it in the half pipe. So you knew like uh, the progression was naturally into the half pipe, like doing your, yeah. Oh, okay, interesting. Wow. So um, what was the, like, so once, so you landed your first flip, you realized this could be, you know, you can take, you can go pro in this. What was the, what was the journey like from that moment to actually becoming pro? Like, could you visualize like, hey, like I, like I want to make the Olympic team in Sochi. I think that would be, you know, that, that's like, what, like when did you get to that point where you're like, that's, that's my goal. Um, and what was the journey like to get there? I think I kind of set that goal probably when I was around 14. Um, I was still competing like on the regional circuit until I was 13 or 14, which is around the age that kids will start competing in professional level events. Um, so that's kind of when I started just competing at those events. Like I wasn't, I wasn't competitive with the best girls on the circuit by any means, but I think just like being exposed to that level of riding and being so close to all of these girls who I had looked up to for years, and watched on the TV for years definitely inspired me and definitely kind of lit a fire to really be pushing myself to the next level. So I would say just, just being exposed to those elite writers like Kelly Clark and Caitlin Farrington, um, a girl, Maddie Shafrick, who I grew up with in Steamboat, who had gone pro. It just made a huge difference in really like motivating me to try and get to that next level in my riding. Um, 
And then I got put on the U.S. snowboard team right around the same time, just on the rookie team, mm -hmm. um, which is essentially just their developmental team. But that's really, I think, the primary reason that I was able to get into a lot of these professional level events and start like progressing up the competitive ladder um, was just because the U.S. team really gives you a really solid platform, especially as a young up-and-coming athlete. They just are able to put you in the events that you need to be in and expose you to incredible coaches and other athletes who are um, kind of in the same pipeline. And I think that was a almost the entire reason that I ended up being able to go pro was just having that sort of um, support system in place that like really just like guided me right into it. And all I had to do was just continue working hard and trying to learn as many tricks as possible and, trying to land runs at contests. <laughs> that must have been pretty cool to see your idols turn into essentially like your rivals, right? Like that's saying. It's, it was definitely a really interesting progression. I remember my first several contests being absolutely terrified to even be around them at the top of a half pipe, just, you know, feeling like very insignificant little kid that just worshiped these girls. Um, but then I remember like, as I was at more and more events and kind of gradually was starting to finish with better results, I think they kind of started to take notice and um, started to engage with me a little bit more. That's, that's one thing that everyone on the circuit has always been really good about is like trying to engage with the young athletes, um, especially in women's snowboarding. There's not a whole lot of young up and coming women's snowboarders. So it really does kind of need to be a community where the older girls do kind of take the lead and reach out to the younger girls and act as a bit of a support system, I'd say, just to just to kind of inspire the next generation and show them that what they want is completely attainable. Because I think, especially in half-pipe snowboarding in particular and as a woman, I think it can be really intimidating trying to break into that industry, especially when you're an up-and-coming little girl from some random place that really hasn't had a lot of guidance up until that point. Yeah. Oh, I hear you. What, what, what is it like being on the team? Like from a community perspective? It was, I mean, it's amazing. I, the team has changed a lot over the past several years. Um, over the past several years that I've been on the team, especially I've seen a lot of girls come in and out of the industry. Um, you know, one of my, greatest inspirations like I said was Kelly Clark and she was an established rider on the U.S. snowboard team when I first got on the team and she had already been on the team for 10 to 15 years at that point yeah. and I got on the team and competed alongside her for the past eight or nine years and she just retired in 2018 so I mean throughout the entire span of my career I built a really strong relationship with her and I think you know, when I first got on the U.S. team, most of the girls were five and six years older than me. So I was really just able to kind of follow their lead. I, I definitely remember trying to be the cool kid, like trying to get them <laughs> to like me right from the get go, because I think initially I felt like a little bit of an imposter, like just kind of coming in from out of nowhere. And there there always is a little bit of a threat associated with like the new up and coming young gun. Totally. Uh, but I mean, it, there's, there's also a huge community behind the industry. And I think considering that it is an individual sport, I think there's a 
really great sense of community and everybody just wants to see each other succeed despite it being an event that we are technically competing against each other. And that's the beautiful part about individual sports is like, like it's, it's really just you versus you, right? Like how far do you want to push it? Like it's nothing to do with the other person. Right. And so like them trash talking you or whatever, doing whatever they need to do to try and bring you down doesn't work. I mean, of, of course that's not what you describe, but them trying to bring you up is also even better thing because when the tide rises, so do all the boats. So I think that's super beautiful that they, it's such a healthy culture there. So. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. I mean, that's, that's what's kept me in the industry for so long is that it's not, you know, obviously there's my own stress that's associated with competing and stuff, but any of that performance anxiety is self-inflicted and it's something that it comes from me wanting to be a better competitor for myself, not because I'm feeling any animosity towards my other competitors. And, you know, I think initially it's easy, like as a young gun, I definitely remember feeling pretty competitive with the other girls, but I also learned very quickly that those were the girls that I was going to be spending all of my time with and the ones who were going to push me to be a better snowboarder. And um, I think that, it, you know, it doesn't serve you, especially in an individual sport to, to isolate yourself when you have so many like-minded people around you that you can bond with. And if you're going to be spending all of your time with them, you might as well get to know them. And it, I definitely met some of my best friends by doing that. Dang. Who are some who are some of your buddies on the team? Your best friends on the team? Well, the team's pretty small these days. Um, right now, for the women's side of things, it's myself, Chloe Kim, Maddie Mastro, and a girl named um, Sunny Alba, who I haven't actually met before. But it's, you know, I'm you good friends with all those girls. That's a girls team? It's just, it's, it's just you four? Wow. Yeah, yeah, the team is shrunk drastically over the past couple of years. Um, you know, I think a lot of people approach Olympic cycles as kind of a, a good way to kind of reevaluate where they're at. So I, after every Olympics, it seems like there's, there's a few people who tend to kind of step away, step away from the sport, use it as a good time to do that just because, um, I think the Olympics is such an exhausting experience. I mean, it's incredible, but it's exhausting. Like the, the amount of work and time that you have to put into qualifying and then into competing and um, everything by the time the season's over, it's like everybody definitely wants to take a step back and dissociate for a little bit. Um, and I think that certain people who are already kind of preparing for the end of their career just sometimes decide that that's, that's their time. And so, yeah, the past several years, there, there was already kind of an age gap on the team between – um, like myself, like I'm on the oldest, I'm the oldest on the team right now, um, compared to like Kelly, who just retired recently, um, who was older than me for sure. So it definitely, I think there was a bit of a gap just in the age differences that kind of left the team being smaller, but I'm hoping that more girls will continue to um, get back into the sport. I know there are a lot of up and coming girls. And like I said, this girl, Sunny, who I haven't met yet, sounds like she's a really talented young rider. So it's definitely refreshing to see that there's still girls coming up through the pipeline. Yeah, for sure. Cool. What is, uh, could you take us through the day or your pre-competition mindset and like what that all is like? 
I guess this is maybe on different levels. Let's say for like an X Games level and then like an Olympic level. Like, what is is there if there even if there is a difference at all? You know, I really try not to make there be a difference. Um, I think between any contest, just because I think if I if I blow any one contest out of proportion in my head too much, then I feel like the performance anxiety can kind of eat you alive a little bit. Totally. Um, you know, it's it's. The night before a contest, I'm usually pretty nervous, but then um, on the day of the event, I f feel like I usually wake up pretty clear-headed um, and really just want to make sure I eat, like, a good breakfast. Like, kind of my go-to contest breakfast is uh, just oatmeal with, like, almond butter or something, something that I know will keep me full through the day. Um, and then up until the event, I really just like to listen to music Um everyone kind of approaches being at the top of the pipe a bit differently, like in terms of to what degree they like to interact. Like some of my former teammates prefer to kind of keep to themselves until they've taken their run. Um, I like to talk to people as much as I can, because I think it's nice to have a distraction. Um, Cause it definitely like waiting up there for a run can feel like forever. Totally. So I like to try and distract myself by joking around with my teammates or, um, doing a good warm up or pretty much anything I can to stay busy. Um, and then once it's time for my run, that's when I like put the headphones in and really get into like whatever music I'm feeling that day and um, try and focus in. Do you compete with your headphones in listening to music? Yeah, I have one headphone in. I don't, I've tried two headphones in, but I don't like feeling completely disconnected. I like being able to like hear the snow under my board and like hear the sounds of the outside world because they're still like, I'm still very tuned into like what's in my headphones. So nothing's distracting that I'm hearing in the other ear. But for some reason, the, the feeling of having both headphones in kind of psychs me out. I, I like to still kind of feel like I'm like tuned into what's going on around me. What's your uh, go-to song going down the half pipe? Do you have one? Oh, uh, I, it's, during the Olympic year, I was all about Eminem. I still love Eminem. Nice. Um, I would not have guessed that, actually. <laughs> I no. don't think many people would. It's it's something that I've definitely, like, over the years have, like, I mean, I've, I've always really enjoyed his music, but over the past several years, especially through snowboarding, like, I've always just found his music to be really good when I'm snowboarding. Um, I also have been listening to a lot of, like, I listen to a lot of like Elenium and Seven Lions. Like I've gotten more into like that kind of sort of electronic music, but not like super heavy, like dubstepy stuff, just like the kind of in between. Um, but I mean, I, I like a variety, but I'd say definitely more towards like the rap and that sort of genre. Do you know Eminem was the highest selling artist last year? And he, I don't think he's come up with an album since like 2010 or some like around like way. He, it's been like over five years since he came up with an album, and he was the highest selling artist last year. Isn't that crazy? That's yeah. Well, I'm glad I'm doing well. <laughs> yeah. I know. I thought that was bananas, but I, I like Eminem too. Like some of his old stuff's really good. Like he has this one song. Uh, I can't remember what it goes. It's like, hush, little baby, don't you cry. Everything's oh, yeah, going to be over. Mockingbird, that's what it's called. Yeah, yeah. No, I like that one. But he's just yeah. like so raw. Like he's just like so like he just lays it all out. Like every everything that he's feeling inside, I feel like he just like everything that happens in his life, all the struggles and stuff like that, he puts it out there. Right. And I don't know, I think maybe people relate to that. 
I just like the, I really like his, yeah, his lyrics really are what does it for me. Like, obviously I like the beat that he puts behind it and stuff, but you know, most of the rap that's come out recently, like some of it I can convince myself that I like, but just, <laughs> just compared to old school rap, it's just not very good. Like I agree. The lyrics are not very good. Whereas I think that Eminem's like a lyrical genius, like, his lyrics are half the reason that I listen to his music, but I mean, yeah, it's like, I definitely have, I think only grown in appreciation for him, like the more of his music that I listen to. Mm-hmm. No, I feel that too. But the new artists these days, like annoy me actually, like there's uh, like six, nine, for example, he has this one song. It's called like Wugga or like Booga or something. I don't even know. My friend was playing it. I'm like, this is terrible. Like, this is so bad. Like, but 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 he ha- he has this great story right like as he's got the tattoos on his face like people like the uh, maybe that he's different I don't know but right yeah yeah rap has changed a lot over the past several years so I'm definitely not like I I try to keep an open mind with it and I definitely still like a lot of newer music but it's nice to like still have Eminem as like a good go to if I ever just want some like good rap that I know is gonna be like good lyrics and yeah inspiring I guess. I would have taken you for a country girl, like uh, Big Green Tractor. You know that one? <laughs> I listen to country too. There's just a time and a place for that. Like oh, When you ride your horse. Snowboarding. Not snowboarding? No, that's like driving my truck out to go visit my horse kind of music. <laughs> um, or like road trip music or camping music. But not I, for snowboarding, it's just too laid back for me. Unless I'm, if I'm free riding, I could listen to country, but, but I really, riding half pipe, I need stuff that's going to get me, like, excited, going to, like, get my adrenaline going. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I, I like Big Green Tractor. That's, like, one of my favorite country songs. <laughs> it's a good song. I'll take you for a ride on my Big Green. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Well, cool. So what was it like, um, getting back on topic here, what was it like being an Olympian? Like, or like, first of all, what was it like making the Olympic team? Like, obviously you, you made it in Sochi, correct? Yes. So what was it like making your first Olympic team? And then we'll go ch- check about Pyeongchang. Um, I mean, my first Olympic team experience was pretty amazing. I, I definitely think it it was a bit of a whirlwind, I would say. I was I was 17 at the time, so oh, wow. I was on the younger side of the team for sure. Um, and I think, you know, in the season leading into it, I definitely had been pegged as one of the people that was a pretty surefire um, team member. So, like, it, I wasn't necessarily surprised when I made the team, but it definitely came with a lot of implications that I almost – um, was wishing it hadn't just that was kind of my like the season before had really been like kind of my breakout year and I think that I had kind of a lot of ex- expectations riding on me for being that young yeah uh, like that, those are, that's what you mean by implications like the expectations that came with it yeah yeah it just it felt like it, it wasn't something that I could just go and just purely enjoy the experience and not feel like there was any pressure because I definitely felt the external pressure and I think I was also young enough that it it did kind of take a toll on me uh, in a sense whereas like since then I like to think that I've learned to kind of um, ignore it a little bit but the 
overall experience was incredible just getting to go and experience opening ceremonies and be a part of that and really just see what the whole Olympic experience was like. Um, but I ended up getting hurt on the contest day. Um, I fell on one of my easier tricks and ended up dislocating my shoulder. So I didn't get the opportunity to compete, which was pretty disappointing. Um, I think overall, like the experience in terms of my event specifically was disappointing just because the conditions in Sochi really didn't cater to a high level of riding. Um, it definitely was. Did they bring in all the snow? Warm. Yeah, it was 60 degrees Fahrenheit, way too warm for there to be a contest there. And the whole time we were trying to train in it, they were spraying like these blue chemicals all over it to try to preserve the snow because they'd open up training for us. And traditionally we would get, you know, two to three hours a day of training at a normal contest and maybe three training days before the event. Um, and for this contest, the half pipe was melting out so quickly that we would get a half an hour of practice and then they'd shut it down. And that was every day that we were supposed to have practice until the day of the event. And then the day of the event, they had gotten the pipe to be serviceable. It still was very soft and not holding up well, but they had gotten it to be solid enough that it lasted through the event. Um, but I ended up falling on this trick because we had had no practice and it was the day of the event and it was like, okay, everybody go get it together in 30 minutes so that you can compete in the Olympics. So um, that's not really what you expect. I would say it's not definitely not what I expected going into my first Olympics. Like I, I was definitely expecting to be like in one of the best half pipes of my life with, really good conditions, plenty of practice, like feeling very prepared. And I guess that was a bit naive of me because it's not uncharted territory for the half pipe event at the Olympics to be slightly, um, a, a slight mess, I guess I would say. <laughs> uh, it sounds like Vancouver was comparable. Oh yeah. true. So it's, you know, it's, it's something that I think I just had pretty lofty expectations going into it. So there was, I definitely had um, a lot more disappointment about it and kind of came home and was unsure about if I wanted to continue competing just because that, I think that that whole experience had been really disappointing. And then having a significant injury like that definitely like scared me a little bit and just, I definitely did like some reflecting after that Olympics on whether or not I wanted to continue competing. What made you want to continue? Like when you were breaking it down, like, cause you, I, you were so young, right? Like if I, if I were in you, should I be thinking I have so many, you know, I have at least one more, probably two more Olympics ahead of me. Right. But I guess, but then it is a huge commitment. Like, and then you have your arm injury. Like, I don't know. How did you weigh all those different decisions on? I think it was just having had, the experiences that I had had prior to that, just in competing in other events, just how how much I'd enjoyed my career up until that point and how much I'd enjoyed the feeling of progressing and enjoyed the feeling of doing well in a contest and um, just enjoyed the group of people and the lifestyle and really everything about it. Um, I mean, I was so young at that point still that I knew that I could continue competing for 
several years. Um, and it just kind of felt like a disservice, I guess, to my career to decide to step away from it after having an experience like that, because I knew it was something that if I decided to come back, I could probably continue to work hard and go into future contests with a better head on my shoulders and probably end up like continuing to finish off my career on a more positive note and just, yeah, continue enjoying snowboarding. It, it, it didn't feel right to walk away that early in my career. Yeah. I mean, it was only three years after you really decided that you wanted to go after it. I mean, that's a pretty huge, uh, you know, upward trajectory there. So right. <laughs> you're like, yeah, how much farther can it go? <laughs> It's like it's like selling a company like too early like right you're like was the stock really gonna go is the stock really gonna go up even more, but you yeah. held on you didn't sell. <laughs> uh, like I knew that it was a brief plateau, but I knew that there was definitely still I I knew I had more to give and I didn't want to step away prematurely and regret it in the future. Yeah, wise words. So after your first Olympics, you come home. What was it like training with your arm? Like, obviously, that's a, a huge hindrance in, in training. Do you take some time off and chill? or? And then what was that like training up, up to uh, Pyeongchang? So I took a few months off after dislocating my shoulder and just did as much rehab as possible. Um, you know, I think that all the doctors I worked with were pretty optimistic that I'd be able to get my shoulder um, back to being pretty close to 100% being that it was the first time I'd ever dislocated it. Um, unfortunately, they weren't quite right on that one because I ended up re-aggravating the injury again um, that following season. And that kind of opened up a whole can of worms with my shoulder. It's, it's just one of those things that the more you do it, the more easy it becomes to continue dislocating it. Um, so... I wasn't fully dislocating it when I was doing that, but I was subluxing it, which was enough to kind of loosen up all the ligaments um, around it that were holding it in place. So the more that I subluxed it, which would happen if I like hit a wall with my arm while training or like touch my hand to the snow, um, it started to be like the less that the less that I did, the more easily it would happen. So it went from being like, I would have to have a real impact for it to happen to just being something that if I just like reached my arm out in a weird way, it would sublux. No way. Yeah. So it got very loose over that span of time. And, um, you know, going into Pyeongchang, that was, I think about a year out from Pyeongchang was when, I had been talking to my physical therapist and we decided like I absolutely needed to get it fixed um, and have surgery on it. But it was also a year out from Pyeongchang and it's a pretty significant surgery. It's about a six month recovery. Ouch. So we decided to wait because at that point I wasn't going to make it any worse. You know, I was still subluxing it. Um, most times that I would ride, essentially especially towards the end it was like it felt like it was almost every day I was on snow towards the end of um that year but by that point I also had become very accustomed to it happening so I think um you know I got used to just being able to kind of ride through it I had a really solid support staff who would you know put some kinesio tape on it and do whatever else I needed done anytime it would happen while training mm -hmm. um and 
yeah, going into the 2018 season when the Pyeongchang Olympics were, I definitely had been kind of going through a bit of a lull um, just in terms of like motivation and not feeling entirely prepared or sure if I even wanted to try to pursue another Olympics. Um, you know, I had had a season before that that had been just kind of disheartening, like not really getting great results or really having a whole lot of fun competing. So I felt like I needed to kind of take some time to reflect on what I really wanted out of that season. And in the fall of 2017, I started working with a sports psychologist who helped me completely turn around my approach to competing. And I think that that's really the entire reason that I continued competing through that season and ended up qualifying for the 2018 Olympics. Can you share some of those things that he helped you with? Like maybe just like one or two. Of course, you don't want to give away the full thing. but Oh, it's fine. I, I, I mean, it was, it was a whole host of things. It was... You know, we, she and I worked together once a week for pretty much that entire season, sometimes mm -hmm. twice a week. Um, and really it was just like changing my mindset towards competing. Like any time that like it had become a very automatic response for me to associate competing and snowboarding with like a lot of stress and just kind of negativity. And, you know, the whole, the whole perspective behind her treatment was trying to encourage any time that those feelings, I would feel those feelings kind of lingering or um, I would start to think about um, the sport in a negative light, essentially just automatically deciding, no, I'm going to think about it in a positive way, like to the point that I practiced it so much that it became automatic to think about it positively instead of negatively. Um, I also visualized every day for probably 20 minutes, which doesn't seem like a lot but it, it feels like a lot when you're doing totally, it totally totally it's um, like meditating right kind of like you like sit down you visualize going through your right your half pipe routine or yeah okay yeah it was like visualize my half pipe routine essentially i visualized my entire day on a contest day so i'd pick a specific contest that was coming up that season and i would visualize it from start to finish like from waking up in the morning like putting on my socks making breakfast, everything, like the whole way through to standing on the podium. Because that was always that was always the end goal, obviously, standing on the podium. Um, and like always visualizing landing that perfect run that was going to get me there. And um, just trying to reinforce like more positive neural pathways, because I think that for the season prior, I had just spent so much time like hammering how anxious I would get at contests or like, hammering myself for falling on contest runs and not doing well and silly things that I feel trivial at this point because of how many events I've done in my career. But I also think when you put so much of your time and energy into something like every little hit like that feels monumental, even if it, even if it doesn't seem like it should, you know, it should just be like, Oh, I, there's always another contest, but, um, I think it did take a toll, which is why it made a huge difference to even just change my perspective a little bit and start thinking more positively because that actively made me enjoy contests more, which made me want to learn more tricks and want to continue progressing and want to keep competing.
that's so crazy how big of a like a mind game it is, right? Like I remember, so I ran track in college, and um, like I went through like a similar thing, like where you go through a season of bad performance, but I didn't really have I didn't have the sports psychologist in my you know in my Rolodex to go through that stuff. But that makes sense, right? Like you're at a point where you almost want to quit, and like if you can if you can reframe in your mind and you know get that you know light at the end of the tunnel lined up again, you know it makes it a lot easier to to go throughout the day and to strive to be better. So. Yeah, I mean, I think most athletes will tell you, like, even if I think, you know, from a from a bystander perspective, it's easy to think that um, there shouldn't be a whole lot of mental game involved. Like, as long as you're exercising and training every day and doing all these things, like, you'll be successful. But it's, I feel like it's 70% mental, 30% physical, you know, totally. in terms of, especially in terms of, like, the difficulty, like, obviously, learning how to do these tricks and um, linked together these runs is incredibly difficult, but half of being able to do that is the mental game behind it. Totally. Yeah, that's very true. I want. I think it's a, a, like that for a lot of sports, even some of the more like physical sports. I think a lot of it is, is mental stuff. Yep. But, well, that's cool. So, um, what does it take to make the Olympic team in snowboarding? Like, what is the process like? Like, do you have, is, do you have like a competition similar to like the Olympics, but just for USA? And you make the national, and then you make the Olympic team, or like for a track and field, for example, it's pretty binary. Like either you know you make the time, and then it's the top two people who in the event. Is it similar like that for snowboarding? The top two people, but it's different because you score it right. So yeah, so essentially it's it's points based. So um, in the past, none of the the Olympic team isn't named for snowboarding until two weeks prior to the Olympics. Oh my gosh. Yeah, like some other teams are decided, you know, months and maybe even up to a year in advance. Um, but for us, it's always been that the events leading up to the Olympics are what decide the Olympic team. I think that's obviously how they feel that they can best evaluate who's going to best represent the team at the games because the the progression in snowboarding can change so quickly, and like whoever is whoever's riding the best and kind of spearheading. Um, the progression of the sport changes on a season-by-season basis. So that's just the way that they know they're going to have the best representation at the games. So, for example, there's usually around four or five qualifying events um, leading into the Olympics. Um, I think this past one, it was maybe four events. And the way the point system works is that essentially U.S. team members are only competing against each other for qualifying points. So the events are still international events. So, you know, if it's a, if it's a world cup and it's an Olympic qualifying event, you know, you can still have Canadians, Australians, whoever else they're competing. And if they get on the podium, then it's all treated the same way. But in terms of the points that Americans get, it's like, say for example, an Australian gets first and an American gets second, then that American gets a first place value of points because they were first in Americans. Oh, okay. Got you. And so they take your two best results from however many qualifying events they have, whether it's usually around four or five, Mm -hmm. um, and they sum the points for those. So for example, if an American wins two contests or is the highest finishing American in two contests, then they're guaranteed a spot on the Olympic team. Oh, damn. 
So my results, I qualified with like, I think going into the 2018 games, I qualified with like, uh, like two third places maybe, or a second place and a third place. I was the fourth spot um, on the team, which is technically considered the discretionary spot. So um, while the coaches normally do just elect to have whoever is in that fourth spot go, they could, if they felt like somebody else was more deserving to go or would be a better representative, like say somebody got injured during the qualifying process but would be healthy for the actual games, mm -hmm. then the coaches can technically replace that fourth place person with somebody else that they discretion onto the team. Wow, okay. That's crazy. Fortunately, they did not think that I needed to be replaced. <laughs> and I got to go. Um, but that's always a slightly nerve-wracking position to be in just because yeah. it, there's no guarantees. Well, with you know? your arm too, right? You had your arm injuries. You're like, oh, that, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, they had seen... I had dealt with my shoulder so many times during contests leading up to that point, like, in the middle of contests, in the middle of a oh, contest. Oh, her arm's run. out again. She got to put it back in. The announcers even know. Oh, her arm's out. She's got to put it back in real quick. <laughs> so they knew. They were like, even if it happens at the Olympics, which it did, then I, they knew that I'd be able to handle it. Damn. So you made the team. What was it like in, in, uh, in Pyeongchang? It was your second time around. Did you feel, I'm sure that, you know, you probably felt a lot more prepared and kind of knew what was coming a little bit more. Is that the case? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, it was nice to have had the experience in Sochi to know kind of what to expect. I think my mindset going into Pyeongchang was so much healthier because really I was just focused on having as much fun as possible. That was like, my mindset in general throughout that entire season had definitely turned more towards like, I'm going to have fun regardless, like, and my riding improved because I was more focused on enjoying the sport than I was on progressing or on the results, which I just think is less sustainable. I think it's definitely healthier and more conducive to doing well to just be like enjoying myself. That's why I ended up being able to go pro in the first place was because I was just doing something that I love doing and not focusing on the results and so going into that olympics it was really nice to not feel like there was any pressure on me like i definitely being that i hadn't done that well in the season prior i think that a lot of people kind of saw me as the dark horse like my teammates were chloe kim who is the best woman snowboarder in history and she's only 19 um kelly clark who had won her first olympics when she was 18 and was had won the most events in a row of any woman's snowboarder ever. And then um, another girl, Maddie Mastro, who was also an incredibly talented, young, up-and-coming athlete who had been having some really successful seasons. So I definitely think, like, I was enjoying myself just because I knew that I could go and do terrible, and nobody would be – I mean, I would be disappointed, obviously, but, like, <laughs> I wasn't – I didn't have any, like, sponsors' hopes or, like – other people's hopes like riding on me to do well and that was really liberating and I think that was the reason that I enjoyed that experience so much was because I was just able to purely focus on having fun and that's something that I don't think I really allowed myself to completely do in Sochi because I was so 
focused on the results and being like, this is like this one contest I've worked towards my entire career. And just being able to let that all go and have no expectations whatsoever just allowed me to enjoy the overall experience so much more. It was probably the best month of my life. I had more fun than I can remember having ever. <laughs> Dang, that's crazy. I want to tell you something you probably don't uh, watch. It. I don't think I've ever told you this, but when I first met you outside the half pipe there, that area I was actually not supposed to be in. I had the I had an accreditation, but for whatever for whatever reason I just like I was just like wandering around. I walked up there and the Korean ladies never said anything. So I literally was like I had like the best seats in the house. I was sitting there right at the half pipe, and all of a sudden That's all these weird. athletes are coming through. I'm like, oh shit, I'm definitely not supposed to be here. <laughs> so it's weird. I mean, security's tight there, so you gotta I know. Yeah, yeah, but there was like uh, it was like two Korean girls. So I'm sure when they see a blonde blonde hair, blue eye white guy I mean, i'm sure that's not like a it's not like a they see it every day right so i don't know you probably look like an agent or something like that yeah They're like we're gonna argue with you just go <laughs> well and it was so funny because actually one time after i realized that i walked back later and <laughs> as i was walking by uh they're like they like stopped me i was like oh shit they got me like and they're like can we get can we take a picture with you i was oh like oh my gosh okay <laughs> sure that's funny <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> they probably cool. thought you were an actor or something. Well, they probably thought I was an athlete or I don't know. <laughs> yep. I was an imposter. Yeah, anyways. No, but that was yeah, that was that was a good time. You remember watching you absolutely killed it like like it's really like it's hard to I mean, it's probably hard for you to like understand it, but from like uh from like an average person's perspective like myself, like to see someone up there in a the half pipe, like those walls are huge, they're like 20 foot walls. And to see you up there doing flips, just like tackling the hill is just like, it's really, it's really something special to see. So oh, you. yeah, of course. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. I mean, every time I reflect back on that experience, it's, it's bittersweet for sure. There's definitely been a lot of days since then that I've wished that I could teleport back to reliving that entire experience because it was incredible but then there's also like the prospect of potentially being able to do it again in the future so um bigger and better bigger and better in uh, beijing 2022 but uh i I hope they don't have the same issues that they did with as like sochi because i think beijing gets like super hot in the summertime right like where i know well, they, they actually they hosted the Summer Olympics, right? So, where are they going to host the Winter Olympics? Is there yeah. mountains nearby, or? I think it's like a snowfield. Like, I don't think it's I. I it doesn't sound like it's going to be like a world class venue per se. Like, it definitely isn't a place that has a lot of snow normally. But you know, Pyeongchang like didn't necessarily have a whole lot of natural snow, but it was, it was cold. cold enough that they were able to blow the snow that they needed to have a really good half pipe, like actually one of the best half pipes I've ever ridden. So seriously, well, wow. yeah, the set, my second Olympics was actually what I, what I expected it to be more. So just in terms of the, the quality of the venue and, you know, the overall experience, I would say. So, um, you know, I, I have a little more hope for Beijing just because I, I have heard some things about people going there since the next Olympics is already sort of coming up um there have been a lot of u.s team staff and other people who have been there to kind of 
check out the venue in advance and it sounds like it has potential to be a good situation so hopefully it will be dang yeah fingers crossed for sure so outside of snowboarding what does your life look like you got school you got your horses and you, and you go backpacking hiking what are some of the things you like to do outside of outside of uh, snowboarding yeah, I mean, that's that's most of it. I I just got a puppy uh, a few months ago. He or um, she, is, been, is she there? He there? She, she's upstairs. I could go get her. She's a she's a chocolate lab puppy. She's she's like 7 months old now, so she's not she's not tiny anymore, but um I have been I'd wanted my own dog for years and have been fostering dogs for an animal rescue for years. So, no way. Seriously. Yeah, so I knew I could handle it. I was like, it, it was only a matter of time before I got one. And then especially being kind of um, down and out this season, just kind of taking most of the year off, I figured I might as well. Now seemed like the perfect time to, you know, get, make sure that I had her at a time where I could take the time to make sure she was properly trained and just ended up being a well-behaved dog in general. And it's, so far worked out she definitely has her moments she's going through we call them her terrible twos right now because she really doesn't listen to half the things i say but i know that it's only temporary so yeah well it's worth it too because once you train a dog and you have a good dog who listens it's like it's like such a much better experience i feel like rather than if you have a dog who just like raises hell and you don't train like my buddy is a dog it's like a human it's literally like a human like it's the craziest thing like he just doesn't, it's like a human that doesn't talk. Like it's, yeah. No, it, it makes a huge difference. So that's why it's been, I mean, with everything that's going on right now too, obviously I've had plenty of time at home. So between just kind of taking classes and, um, you know, trying to stay busy in that capacity, just having her and going on hikes and doing things like that has been a great way to just kind of enjoy the summer. Is she, is she old enough to handle the hikes though? Yeah, yeah, she's great on hikes. I just took her on one this morning, actually. She loves it. I mean, right now it's it's getting to be a bit hot in the summer for her to be going on hikes in the middle of the day, but um, she also loves the water, so that's usually when I'll like take her swimming or do something to cool her down afterwards that she really enjoys doing. Sounds like me and her would get along just fine. <laughs> so, come out later. Yeah. Are you, are you in Boulder, or what, what part of uh, Colorado are you in? I'm in, I'm just outside of Boulder. I'm in, like, I'm right in between Boulder and Denver in Arvada. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've never been there. I've been to, I've been, been to Denver before, but never been. Actually, I don't even think I've ever been up to Boulder. But I You would it. particularly like it. It's gorgeous. I, I love Boulder. I would live there for as long as I could. It's just, it's a bit on the expensive side for living there long term. It is. I know there's, there's a lot of really good runners that uh, are there, of course, of, of Colorado Boulder, but... There's a huge active community there. Like I know there's lots of cyclists and, and oh, yeah. a lot of entrepreneurs too that, that go there. Yeah. Boulder people are some of the most fit people I've ever seen in my life. I mean, I grew up in the mountains and they a lot of them even make steamboat people look like they're not that fit, which is crazy. It's just the it's a lot of triathletes and like people who do a lot of endurance sports. That's like most of Boulder's population, it feels like. Dang, that is crazy. They're like the um, was it like the tribe in Mexico? They get, they're like the super marathon people. Have you ever heard of them? They're like the ultra marathon. They run like hundred mile marathons. Anyways, but well, I was I was asked a question earlier. Um, now, it's like so, since you grew up in steamboat, 
does every single ski hill like for example in minnesota we don't like where i'm from we just have like basically valleys which is like a 200 foot run which is like basically nothing like is every other hill every other hill you go to just like seem disappointing and sad right. colorado yeah i mean we're we're spoiled for sure like steamboat steamboat has two mountains they have like the main resort that's mount warner and that's like where like 90 percent of their ski traffic comes from is mount warner because it's significantly larger um but what they have that's kind of unique is they have house and hill um and that's like their second mountain it's definitely more of a hill um they have a chairlift but the chairlift actually only runs in the summer um what <laughs> yeah it's like they have an alpine slide so the chairlift they use the chairlift for like an alpine slide oh, in the okay. yeah, yeah. Uh, and then in the winter they just have like a pommel lift that takes people up the top it's it's got like three runs it's got like the run on the face and then it has like a cat track that goes around the backside and comes to the base area and what's cool about Halson is that most of their traffic is at night and it's where most winter sports club kids train. So like when, before you get into high school, when you're in elementary and middle school, you can go to Halson Hill at four o'clock after you get off of school and go ski for two or three hours at Halson. And they didn't have a half pipe there at the time and they, they did for a few years, but, um, they didn't really ever have one there at any point when I was riding there. Um, but they have like little jumps and rails and like gate training for skiers and snowboarders that are racing gates and just being able to go and snowboard in any capacity every day, I think was really advantageous to me. Like I definitely, it was the one of the most accessible places I could have grown up in, in terms of trying to pursue a, career as a professional winter sport athlete no kidding that's like ground zero for everything mm -hmm. sports it's super interesting because like i feel like there are certain parts of the country where like only certain things can grow like for example like and this is like in all, all different areas and so that, i mean i know it sounds kind of vague but like for example in this high up in the sierra nevada is, is like the only place where the sequoia tree can grow and it seems like like whether you're an athlete or you're an entrepreneur or like you're an artist, it seems like there are certain parts of the country where those types of people grow, you know what I mean? Like where, the, where those people become. So it seems like Steamboat was kind of like the perfect place for an elite level, elite, you know, elite pro snowboard like yourself to grow. So, yeah. I don't know. Just no, it definitely was. I mean, it, they, Steamboat, there were several pro snowboarders who came out of Steamboat before I did. It, including my older brother, he competes at the professional level. Oh, seriously, I didn't know that. What yeah, he he didn't end up going to Pyeongchang because he had been dealing. He broke his kneecap um, like three or four years ago now. Um, so going into the Olympics, he was still kind of rehabbing from that and wasn't able to compete that season. Um, but he's back to one hundred percent healthy now, and he's competing again and. Um, he's definitely hoping to make the next Olympic team and he's, he's in a good position to do it. He had a really great season last year. Um, won one of the events at X games, like he's, he's in a really good place. Dang. That's awesome. Wow. I didn't realize he was a high level snowboarder as well. That's pretty cool to have an ever brother to look up to like that. Well, now he's probably looking up to you. So <laughs> tides have turned, tides have turned. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's, 
incredibly talented. It's it's fun to watch, and it's like it's obviously really enjoyable to have somebody who I obviously relate to on several different levels and also just get along with and care about just I guess just having kind of a piece of home on the road I guess when we're traveling a lot like there's it's really important to have a really solid support system especially you know in a career where we do spend you know six to eight months out of the year traveling so being able to travel with him and just kind of always um, be there for each other I think has made a pretty huge difference in my career I know I definitely I missed him a lot when I was competing in Pyeongchang because he didn't even come overseas. I mean, it, it would have been a huge trip for him. With his um, knee and stuff. Yeah, but I actually called him in between my runs. After I had fallen my first or my second run, I called him um, and spoke to him before I landed the run that got me the medal. So um, he definitely like talked me off the ledge a little bit because I was definitely like, panicking a little bit like sitting in fourth place going into my third run and being like what else do I have to do and uh he definitely was kind of the voice of reason in that moment and definitely was a big reason that I was able to go into that third and final run with a pretty clear head what did he tell you he just said relax and you got this like he didn't you know it wasn't any sort of like poetic thing per se <laughs> it was just like he give the miracle I, speech <laughs> yeah no he just like he knows me better than anybody so he knew that it he didn't need to say much but he just knows how much i respect his opinion and how much i i want to know what he has to say about these things and especially like if there's anybody who i know that i can trust to give me like the truth and be completely honest with me it's him so you know i think you know the main point he was trying to convey was just that I knew what to do and just to focus and take a deep breath and put down the run that I had been practicing all year. And you went out and you killed it. And you took <laughs> yeah, that podium was, by storm. It was definitely like the, it was definitely a dream come true. It was really, I couldn't have written it better myself. So it was the best day of my life for sure. So when's that movie coming out? <laughs> <laughs> there should be a movie. I'm waiting for somebody to call me. <laughs> So, uh, call her. <laughs> yeah. I'll, uh, give my phone number to you and you can just, like, post it around for me. <laughs> You'll get a bunch of creepy guys messaging you. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure if I want that. Unless you're a movie director, please don't contact me. <laughs> yeah, we'll put that explicitly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool, cool. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. I said 4.30. What time is it? 4.26. So, we can wrap it up here. I know we had technical difficulties a little bit before. But I, since you said that invitation uh, about coming to Colorado, I would next time I'm in town, I'm definitely gonna hit you up. I would love to connect, you, hang out with your puppy, maybe go ride horses or something. Yeah, no, but, seriously, you should definitely let me know. Like I, I am around, and I always love to show people all of the finer parts of Colorado. So we'll definitely do some fun things. And I have to show you this. Look at this right now. Look how cheap flights are. Round trip, round trip from Los Angeles to Boulder. Oh, wait. No, sorry, not to Boulder, to uh, Denver. Denver? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you can see. Oh my gosh, that's Th insane. $34. $34 round trip. Oh. What? What is that on? What platform is that on? It's called Skip Lag. So like, uh, it's like a bunch of different ones. So it's, oh, okay. 
Yeah. So it's kind of like Hopper. Like it pulls yeah. them all together for the cheapest one. Yeah, yeah. So like Spirit, $34. Frontier, $36. That is nuts. United Airlines, 54 Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So, uh... But I definitely, I feel like I need a haircut for, so you don't, so I don't, you don't mistake me for like a homeless person when I show up. A <laughs> haircut beforehand? Yeah, because I got, I, this is my COVID, my pre-COVID, like I haven't cut it oh, since, yeah. uh, since we went into lockdown, so. Well, I think it looks good. Do you know how to cut hair? Uh, I cut my own hair, but that doesn't mean I know how to cut hair. <laughs> oh, you, wait, you always cut your own hair or you have cut your own hair once? No, for the past like year or so, I've been cutting my own hair because I really don't care that much how it's styled. I just don't like when it gets so long that it's out of control. So I've been trimming my own hair because I would rather do it myself and do a slightly subpar job than spend $45 for somebody else to do it. It's 45 bucks to get your hair cut. Mine's like 25 That's very expensive. And also $45 is dirt cheap for a normal women's haircut. It's just because I don't I get very no-frills haircuts. Some women spend over a hundred dollars easily on their haircut every time every time getting their hair colored and stuff oh yeah Damn. easily wow okay well that's that makes more sense because like a guy's haircut is like like you can get a cheap one of great clips for like 12 bucks or something like that yeah. i get mine i get mine for like 25 bucks i have my lady back in minnesota who does it yeah but yeah that's interesting i did not know it was so expensive <laughs> there's a big discrepancy there shit is it's i know i'm like if i if you don't blow dry my hair or do anything else to it can you charge me less because i really don't care like they just they take the extra hour to like style it and stuff before i leave and i'm like i'm just gonna go work out right now don't please don't waste your time <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i feel yeah cool well i'll let you go it was so nice to chat with you though really good to catch up it's been too long are you still um are you still yeah. working with wendy by chance or no? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm still like, it's, you know, since I didn't compete this year, like we haven't been as like frequently in contact just because, you know, up until this point I had been like kind of chilling and dissociating a little bit from the industry. But, um, yeah, she still represents me and probably leading into this season we'll be kind of getting back to work again. Nice. Who's, who's your favorite sponsor? If you can say, wait, can you say that? Actually, I don't know if you can say that. But no, I well, I was right now. I'm still working with Rockstar, and they're like my main one, so they're my favorite because they're my main sponsor. But you're a main main bitch. Up right now in the industry, like there, I don't have very many sponsors, and a lot of people don't because a lot of companies don't have a lot of money. So you're like my favorite sponsor is the whatever sponsors I have. <laughs> well, whatever I get. well, when we get enough money, we'll sponsor you. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. Throw some endorsement deals in there and I'm, I'm in. Okay. Do you have like a, a monster or like a rock star room with all your rock star that they send you? No, I have, I've been trying to like give a lot of it away so that it's not like stockpiling up too much if I can, but it's, yeah, it's it still kind of happens inevitably because I get like three cases a month. You should start up a uh, rock star black market. Uh, I could. Yeah. That sounds like a good idea. Sell, I, I don't know how I would. I, I'm i not sure if, how many people would actually buy it from me, but I could try. I, <laughs> I give it to my coworkers a lot. I work at a doggy daycare part time oh, and good. I like bring it into work because a lot of them have to work like the super early morning shifts and 
it gets them through the long day. So I'm like, you know, if you appreciate it, then I'm happy to bring it in. <laughs> It'll be Ariel's Black Market Rockstar. You can sell, you can get everyone Amazon store. We'll set you up a Shopify. It's 50 true. cents a can. You're good. You're golden. I start stockpiling now. Honestly, <laughs> I should have been doing it this entire time. You're, but I should you're like thinking now. about it like, damn, that you could be your own yeah. sponsor. <laughs> yeah. But even if they end up deciding they don't want to sponsor me anymore, I just got a garage full of rock star that I can pay my salary with. Yeah, true. <laughs> cool, cool. Well, it was so good chatting with you. Um, appreciate you. And uh, I hope to chat soon. I'll, I'll shoot you over all the stuff once it's live. I uh, would we'll yeah, love for yeah. you to share it on your social media. I'll, I'll try and cut Cut out a couple snippets um, of of like good content of good little nuggets you dropped in there. So yeah, that's perfect. Just uh, let me know if you need anything else in the meantime. But I'm excited to see it. Yeah, sweet, good stuff, good stuff. And I'm gonna let you know about coming out. So just so I like know, like when would be a good time? Like is summertime a good time to come out? I would say either. I mean, I think summers are good. Like summer, you can more reliably guarantee that I'll be around, or like summer or fall. Yeah. Like that's better just in terms of making sure it's not like during the contest season. Um, but like in the winters, I still am around a lot. It just has to be a little bit more like set in terms of like scheduling just to make sure it's not like during a contest. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, I'm going to let you know because flights are super cheap right now. So it would definitely be worth it for me to make a trip out. So. Okay. Yeah. Keep me posted. Okay. Sounds good. We'll let you run. Um, have a wonderful rest of your day, and uh, I look forward to chatting with you soon. Yeah, thanks. You too. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Thanks, Ariel. Bye-bye.